0: It's Behind the Headlines on WLIW. Uh, this is when we bring together award-winning journalists from all over the East End for a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's local news. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27east.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton. He is the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill.
1: Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. And a
0: good panel today, we have Michael Mackey,
1: who's the newscaster from
0: 88.3 WLIW-FM and the local host of Morning Edition. How you doing, Michael?
2: Good morning, all.
0: Good to have good you. Jessica Mackin, who is the editor and publisher of the James Lane Post. Hey, Jessica. Thanks. Thanks for joining us this morning. And uh, Denise civiletti who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. So I thought we'd start um, with something that's pretty current, and that is East Hampton Airport. Uh, after a long discussion about uh, the future of the airport, this weekend and early next week is going to be the start of a, a plan for the town to shut the airport down uh, for, I believe it's 33 hours, Bill. I think that's what yes. it was. And and then to reopen, basically an overnight shutdown and and to reopen as a, I believe it's on Wednesday morning. uh, Is it Wednesday morning or Thursday morning?
1: Thursday morning. morning.
0: Thursday at 9 a.m. They will reopen as a private airport owned. Nothing changes. The town still owns it um, and the town will still operate it. But that's a big change as far as. Some of the things that they can put into place uh, as far as restrictions. And Jessica, it looks like so there were some last minute efforts by opponents of this plan to go to court to try and stop it from happening. They're seeking a temporary restraining order. But they've done that in the past. And I don't know that the argument is any different this time and they haven't been successful so far. So it kind of looks like the town's going to move forward to, forward with this. It's going to give the town some options as far as as trying to manage the noise and the, the traffic at the airport. That's something that they've been seeking to do for you know 20 years since it's really become a big issue.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what we were hearing is that there, you know, be like 40 percent less air traffic. I think we're going to continually see these lawsuits come about from um, different aviation groups. Um to try to limit, you know, to try to stop this in its place. But um, it looks like it's all going ahead with the, uh, the May 19th date, correct? Yeah.
0: And I think it, and, and it's important to explain to people that as a as a public airport, they, the town had gotten some FAA grants and, and that the airport was considered a, a public airport. And so the town really had its hands tied for many years as far as what it could do as far as restricting traffic. But this will allow the town to put some things in place. And and I believe they plan to do some curfews. They plan to limit traffic. Um, They're going to turn it basically into an airport where you have to make a reservation to fly into it. Um, And that'll allow them to to limit a little bit. And Jessica, this is all about the helicopters right this yeah. is it's not really about planes it's not even about jets it's really about the helicopters
3: yeah and i think it's to limit it to you know each company can only go or a private owner can do one flight a day i believe um which you know if you look at the blade the company is like blade they're they're flying in and out you know very frequently um and i think it's important to note that you know where that air traffic may go next, if it's not allowed in East Hampton Airport. Um, I know West Hampton will probably be the biggest spot for that, but it's
0: interesting. We're actually, it was West Hampton, and uh, there's a lot of concern about Montauk Airport, which is a very small airport, uh, but a small airport uh, you can land helicopters at a small airport. It's not, you know, you don't need a big landing strip like you do with with planes. And also uh a lot of people forget about the helipad in Southampton Village. That's there's true. Yeah. There's one, there's one down on Meadow Lane that that is sort of a public facility. But I'm also intrigued by the idea that that it's been mentioned. Um, Bill, we had a story that that there was some talk about switching some of this traffic over to seaplanes. Which there are already seaplanes making the trips out from the city, but some of this traffic may move over to seaplanes and now you have a whole new set of issues with so do seaplanes get to land more frequently in local waterways can can helicopters use floating helipads there was a guy in sag harbor who had this idea that he was pitching. Um, there's a lot of, there's a push down here on the, on the traffic that could pop up in other places, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you'll, you'll see some innovative, um, ideas. Um, although some of those may be a little, a little far-fetched, I think, you know, floating, you know, floating docks or whatever for, for helicopters, the, the, the issue, you know, with all of that is. You know, you've got these people coming in. Do they want to, you know, embark, you know, disembark off a helicopter onto some, some kind of floating pad or whatever, or even a seaplane? And then how do you get from the plane to to land and, you know, and, and all that? I mean, if the, the if, you know, the idea of, of taking the helicopter out here is, is one of convenience, you know, you know, grabbing a helicopter in the city or wherever, coming out here, getting off the helicopter at the airport, getting in a car and, and going to your destination, I think the more con- complicated you make that, um, the less attractive that becomes. I think Jessica's right. You're going to see the other airports probably pick up a lot of traffic, Um, you know, but but again, so, so if you're flying, you know, into West Hampton and then you're getting into, um, you know, a, a, a limo or an Uber or something and, and you're still trying to get to, to East Hampton or Montauk through, through, um, you know, day parade traffic, I think that uh, that becomes an issue, too. Um, so, you know, you know, the destinations are, are going to be important. I think West Hampton could certainly handle more flights, but then you're going to have neighbors and, uh, you know, residents of West Hampton up in our, about you know increased traffic there. Although um, you could argue that it's a little better suited. It's right near, you know, it's right near the highway. It's it's kind of off the beaten path. It's not, you know, in the middle of the village and 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 all that. So so you might see some picked up traffic there. But certainly people who are Um, set on flying out to the Hamptons are going to find a way. And these companies that are making a lot of money catering to them are going to um, find a way to to do that as well, I would think.
0: Michael, this is just uh, another impact of the growing interest in people coming out here. But Bill makes a great point if it's not convenient. I mean, the whole point of the helicopter flights is convenience. Um, If you are... Taking a helicopter out to West Hampton and you still have to sit in traffic to get to East Hampton, that's not going to be convenient. If you're taking a helicopter out and you land on some floating helipad and you have to get into a dinghy in heels, (laughs) uh, the, the convenience factor kind of drops off significantly, right?
2: Yeah, the convenience factor is being compromised. And of course, it also creates traffic somewhere else. Not that we'll notice because it's so heavy already <laughs> on the roads. So right. if, you're, if you're flying into Wayne and going to your home in uh, Georgia, beach, and now you're landing at West Hampton airport and you have to drive from there or be driven from there to East Hampton, Hello, that's not convenient. It's not convenient for any of us either. I find this issue very interesting. For it's, it's the town of East Hampton can't win. They're being challenged from people who want the airport closed entirely, and they're also being challenged by those who want to make greater use of the airport as they have previously. Also, while it sounds like it, it truly is a, uh, a compromise of one's quality of life, to the severe extent, the the loud noise is being created. Most of us living on the east end are not affected by that noise. And uh, theoretically, the airport is very good for us. It's that many fewer people on the road. And I there have been studies on this. It does increase revenue in the, the town of East Hampton. They balance that against their quality of life issues. But like most of the issues we're facing politically and sociologically, it's not black and white. It's uh, there are there are arguments on all sides, and there's, it seems like they're going to continue. But it does. We're this is Friday morning, and there are pending lawsuits. But it does appear that by the time it's a broadcast tomorrow, and by uh, Tuesday night, they're going <laughs> to go ahead and uh, and close that airport and reopen as a private facility with all the restrictions that the town of East Hampton will impose. Well, I I'm just. The, oh, yeah. sorry. No, go ahead. I, no,
4: I just wanted to say that as a resident of Riverhead in the North Fork here um, and, uh, you know, the area that we cover here, um, it, it has it actually has a very um, s- severe impact on certain parts of the North Fork because
2: yeah, you hear a um, lot of complaints from people. On oh, the my
4: goodness. Uh, those helicopters, I mean, they take various paths to get across when they when they you know come east over the Long Island Sound. Right. And then they cross the North Fork at various places. Um, Sometimes they are like literally at the treetops, even in my backyard. And it's it's like you know if you're outside and you're having dinner or whatever in your yard, they helicopters coming over. You can't you can't have a conversation. That's how low and loud they they are. And Um, You know that Town Supervisor
2: Scott Russell has had multitude of of press conferences regarding this issue. Absolutely,
4: it's been uh, on an ongoing problem. It's been a little better the last couple of years. I personally, I hope it stays that way. But at least where I live, but you know, you know, they they want to fly low and they want to, you know, what's intriguing to
0: to me too, Bill. I, I don't know that any of these changes. Are going to allow the town to do a whole lot about the path, right? Uh, the, no. the path that the aircraft take. I think that the, up to the FAA. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I don't think the town. I don't think these changes are going to necessarily give the town more power to address that particular part of the problem, right?
1: No, no, but I, I think the thinking is if there's less less helicopters, then it becomes less of a, a problem. But Denise is right. It's like living in a war zone sometimes when, when they're yeah. coming overhead, it's, you know, it's like what's going on, but. And it may um, just be the number too. Just- and I think, I think those paths are, are kind of suggested by the FAA, right? I mean, there's, there's, I don't, I don't think they're, they're, they're really very enforceable. Um, I mean, they're, you know, it's kind of suggested to go this way or that way. Um, I may be wrong on that, but, but, you know,
4: The FAA established a route, but um, enforcing it it is another story. I mean, you know, um,
0: so and the town, maybe the town can take some action to try and enforce it by say, Jessica, I know, I know that part of the whole, point here is that they're going to be able to limit the number of flights in and so if somebody doesn't follow those recommended paths maybe the town starts to cut back on the number of flights they let them take that kind of thing i think it yeah. it gives the town some power to at least address the situation in a way it hasn't been able to do for many years right
3: absolutely and i Think, um, but I think we will see. You know, the because of the air traffic maybe being diverted to other airports. You know, different issues of noise complaints and and noise pollution. Um,
0: you know. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, the unintended consequences are always interesting to me. And I think it's this will be the first summer with the new rules in place. And I think it'll be very interesting to keep an eye on how that changes to
1: to, to, to Michael's point about the town being caught in the middle. Do we feel like this is... um I mean, time will tell, you know, Joe, but do we feel like this is a an, an adequate compromise? It still allows some of that traffic, but gives the town a little more control and and brings down that number a little bit. So you're not closing the airport necessarily. But but you're just you know, is this is this somewhere in the middle or are they are they missing the mark? Do we think
0: it's a great question? I One of the things part of that equation to me is there aren't a lot of people involved for the number of flights. In other words, I think each of the flights only holds, you know, a, a handful of people. And so for the amount of negative impact, I don't think it's taking that many people out of the, the car traffic or the train traffic coming out to the east end. So, I, I, you know, but it's a great question. I, I, I don't know what the ultimate impact is going to be.
1: And and then, so, you know, and then, you know, then the, it begs the question too, if, if you, if you make it less convenient for people to come out and, and spend their money, will they, will they go somewhere else? Will they go to the Jersey shore? Will they, you know, or, or are they going to just, um, um, buck up a little, buck up a little bit and, and, and deal with some of the traffic out here, come out anyway, um, um
0: it's enough of a question that the New York Times has picked up on that story well, on Friday God. <laughs> and, and done a story finally. So it's it's in the consciousness uh, of, of the city folks, no question. So it'll be this is something to watch this summer to see how that plays out. Uh, we're going to see a big uh, effect of that coming up just in the next couple of days. So we'll keep an eye on it. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIW. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Michael Mackey from right here at WLIW, Jessica Mackin from the James Lane Post, and Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local. Uh, Affordable housing. Let's talk about it. Um, So there's a couple of things that have been uh, happening locally, and we're starting to see some movement. Uh, Southampton Town has taken its first step. Towards putting a plan together with an eye towards the vote in November on the community housing fund. The towns need to have a plan in place. Southampton seems like they're moving pretty quickly on that. East Hampton, a little further behind, but they took the first steps down that path this past week. And Sag Harbor Village, which has decided that it's gonna take this issue on uh, directly. Also unveiled a few plans this week. So, um, you know, this is a this is, as we've said many times, a topic that that almost every other issue relates to affordable housing. Are we going to start, Jessica, to see some actual movement on this issue? Do you think do you think we can start to address this problem?
3: i really hope so i you know it's it's definitely the i'd say one of the number one issues out here at the moment um i think with the peconic bay region community housing act um which will be on the ballot on, in november um adding that 5.5% uh, transfer tax um and it's the towns that have to decide how that will be allocated towards affordable housing um whether it's giving grants or loans to first time homeowners and and also uh um, um, I think it's important to note that, you know, any I believe it's first time homeowners are exempt under for purchases under two million. Um, but, yeah, it's just such a huge issue. Um, and and with the amount of real estate transfers that that happen on the East End, um, hopefully that that percentage puts a dent into some of the, um, the issues that are happening right now.
1: Might, a, a number, though, that I will point out may may be declining um in the next couple of years as the housing stock on on the east end has um has depleted depleted significantly um over the last couple of years during the pandemic as a lot of uh as a lot of inventory has been has been sold so i mean we're putting a lot of eggs in this basket uh we kind of hope that uh that 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 industry you know um stays vibrant and you know and and the that there are somehow that that uh, um, the, the houses available for sale, um, you know, increase a little bit. That that inventory increases um, in time.
0: What I'm intrigued by is Michael. When you start drilling, drilling down into the details here, um, this fund, if they create the community housing fund in Southampton Town, East Hampton Town, the all five. East End towns will have the option of doing it. But if they create it on the South Fork, it'll generate a lot of money. I mean, I think in in Southampton town, I think the estimate is about $15 million a year, which is not a small amount of money to spend. But how you spend that money makes a huge difference. And, And one of the ways the town's are going to look to try and um, affect the, you know some change on this is to try and loosen up the rules as far as accessory apartments that that this would not necessarily require a lot of that money I don't know how that money would come into play but the idea would be to make it easier and more attractive for homeowners to maybe create a, a little apartment. Uh, that they could rent out at a reasonable rate uh, or to add on to their house and add an apartment. I wonder though, how many people are going to be willing to do that? I mean, I, I, I think that's the East Hampton town took a step in that direction in the past and they didn't get a lot of takers.
2: And when you were saying all this, that's exactly what I thought. Wow. That sounds like a good idea. Up Island in Western Suffolk, perhaps in Nassau County, but out here, somebody pays uh, $15 million for a home. They, they're going to look to have an accessory apartment in it. It's, uh, it, it doesn't, the whole, to be honest with you, the whole subject seems so overwhelming. It's not that we should give up and, and shouldn't continue to pursue it. But even $15 million, it sounds like a lot of money. But um, that's the cost of, of, of many properties out here. How do you d- dispense that in a way that uh, effectively addresses the issue? Uh, I'm not sure. And I'm not sure Accessory Apartments does it either. I, I seem to see a lot of the, the vacant commercial buildings. Is there some way that we can make better use of those for housing in the Southampton village? I'm staring across the street right now at an empty, uh, unused building. Their issues, I believe, are infrastructure and 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 based on the water supply and, and right. so forth. But uh It isn't that there aren't empty properties, but in a previous Behind the Headlines sometime back, Joe, you mentioned even if all of these uh, measures were implemented, it would be like a little bitty dot. What percentage of what difference would it ultimately make? If you can make a 2% difference, that's good. It's better than no difference at all. But the situation seems overwhelming. I hate to sound so uh, pessimistic about it because... On the other hand, as long as you can make your rent each month or your mortgage, you're living in paradise out here. Right. But it's it's a scramble and it's uh, and 15 million dollars can be used effectively, but it'll only have a very small impact, even if it's used brilliantly. I just, I well, I I've,
1: I've I've said this before you know on on the show and I mean you say 15 million dollars and it, you're you're not limited to 15 million dollars because once once that tax is enabled if it's enabled by voters then the towns will be able to borrow against future revenue so if you have a project and it's it's a $20 million project or initiative or, or, or whatever, you can certainly borrow on that, knowing that for the next 30 years, you're going to be collecting that half a percent, uh, uh transfer tax. So so you're not limited to spending $15 million a year. And I know some of the towns got into into trouble with the CPF when it was um you know originally en, enacted and borrowing too much too heavily you know against that revenue. But I think hopefully the towns have learned their lesson. And if it's done smartly, um then then maybe we can make a, a, a bigger impact more quickly depending on on what kind of you know uh how how they want to use that money um, to, to, to bring in a little bit more than that, you know, to, to start off and to jumpstart stuff.
0: You know, Jessica, one of the things I find most fascinating about this conversation is we talk about the need for affordable housing, like across the board, this is a multi-level issue. I mean, we need affordable housing for, uh, folks who are doing jobs like landscapers and, 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 you know, it, it's sort of at the lower end of the, of the economic scale, but providing essential labor working in restaurants and doing things like that. But we also need affordable housing for middle-class folks, you know, people, people who are, are working and we, we even need affordable housing for doctors. Mm-hmm. I mean, I the, exactly hospital, the hospital has talked about the fact that they are having trouble getting doctors and certainly nurses into the hospital because of the giant commute that that they face. This is a multi-layered problem that's going to require a really multi-layered solution. We can't just go build a bunch of apartment complexes and think we're going to solve this problem.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it's definitely multi-level. And you see, you know, there are so many people making good salaries out here because the pay is high but there is nowhere to live because the rent is that much higher um so i think there are different ways you have to look at it when you say you know doctors can't afford to live here either or you know and there's for ever across every industry out here people are having issues whether it's with staffing or um with finding housing um but You know, when you go, when we talk about um, the ADUs and the accessory housing, I think it may not be utilized by a lot, but for the people who could use it, it could be helpful to, you know, loosen the restrictions on that a bit, whether it's for um, an aging parent or somebody who's retiring or somebody who's just graduated college, things like that, um, you know, so that families can kind of try to stay together if they wanna stay here.
1: Absolutely, I think, you know, that's twofold um the, you know we had a, a an express sessions on affordable housing a, a few weeks back and 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 the the you know uh, officials from both towns were talking about code changes and you do need to make some code changes to make those accessory apartments um easier to, to to get approved through the permitting process and through the building process and 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 all that and and i think that's step one and that doesn't cost anything other than making the code change but then the cost of creating an accessory apartment can just be prohibitive um, I, I think Jessica if you' if you're doing it for family members then then it feels less prohibitive if it's somebody who's who's doing it because they want to provide housing or they want to make a couple extra bucks um, you know to, to offset their mortgage or whatever you're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to build an apartment that that you may never see a return on um, you know, through by, by renting it at at an affordable level. So, I mean, if, if the towns can come in and and make those code changes, number one, and then number two, maybe there's, there's some kind of financial incentive to, um, to help cover the cost of creating those accessory apartments, um, you know, you know, in the second place. And and I think then that, you know, that makes it a little more easier, a little more, a little more easy. Go ahead, Denise.
4: Well, I mean, well, you know, we Riverhead officials like to say that the town here is the affordable housing capital of the East End. And I think to some extent that's true, not only with the new um, uh, housing uh, apartment complexes and apartment buildings that are going up or will be going up downtown, but also just its underlying housing stock. I mean, it's the, the property values here are a lot lower than on out further east on either fork and and when i say here i'm talking about riverhead downtown riverhead riverhead proper riverside and flanders which is part of the riverhead community even though it's in the town of southampton don't let anybody tell the town of southampton (laughs) Um, but you know it's it's a vexing problem in so many ways for so so long And I don't see it. I'm I'm cynical about the ability of the towns to deal with this. And I think that um, one key thing is how do you define what's affordable? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you look at, um, you know, just looking at this new construction in Riverhead. Right. And we're talking, you know, a thousand new apartments, basically, by the time all is said and done, Um, you know, to get the tax credits that are offered by the state and to get the um, funding from the county and the state. Um, they're, they're bound by the median income, the regional median income standards, right? Which uh, are regional, Nassau Suffolk, and the regional, um, it's, it's like $175,000 or something like that now for a family of four. And Nassau, Nassau Suffolk, the AMI, the adjusted uh, median income, and um, you know, in Riverhead, it's half that. It's like seventy-five thousand. Yeah. I, I don't have the exact numbers in my head, but the, these affordable complexes, so-called affordable complexes, are uh, go, have to go by because of state rules, HUD rules. Have to go by that HUD adjusted median income number for the region, for the Nassau Suffolk region. So.
0: But I'm curious, Denise. It's not affordable here. I think it's sort of an open question. If the towns are able to set up their own community housing funds and do affordable housing, I wonder if they need to follow those guidelines or if they can sort of set some new guidelines and 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 sort of customize them yeah. for the communities that they're we're, trying to deal with.
4: We're actually in the process of, of digging into that a little bit and hope to have a story about that in the next week or so, because I'm Great. You know, clearly then that's what needs to happen, because, you know, I can, my, I'm my daughter got an apartment. There was a lottery. These apartments are very much in demand. Right. But she has a one bedroom apartment. I don't remember the square footage of it, but it's a pretty small apartment. And it's nineteen hundred dollars a month, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in the Riverview Lofts apartment building. It's a very nice apartment. The building is very nice, but it's nineteen hundred dollars a month. That's like my mortgage yeah. on the house that we've been living in for thirty something years now. But um, you know,
0: it's I, asking I, a lot I, of a young of the young people a, coming up.
4: And then people can, in that position can't save money. I mean, who usually rented in order to save money to buy a house and you know live the American dream, right? but you know you can't it, that's untenable so you have and then the the houses uh, you know the, that you buy the prices are just going up, i mean even in Riverhead, which it's still very low compared to you know where you folks um uh, are are live and are dealing with but but still you know, you're looking at a half a million dollars to buy kind of a standard yeah. home in this town. Now
1: I and- I bought my house just five years ago and, and I was lucky to, to, to get it then I I think, and, and there's certainly no more homes in, in that price point. If I were to look for a house today, there's no way I could afford, you know, to, to buy a house. It's just crazy. You know, yeah. I was, I was in, I was in Rochester a couple of weeks ago and, and, um, you know, it was funny. As I was driving around, I was noticing um, one one difference between, and and I was driving around and in and in, in, you know in in the suburbs, and I noticed a difference between up there and and down here is when when you're driving around up there, you'll you'll notice every you know every so often you'll see a very small apartment complex with with maybe a dozen um you know a dozen apartments if if that many and they look they look very nice uh, you know it's a, you know it's not a home on on a lot but but they're you know they're um you know they're classy and i know that doesn't fit in with you know with with the east end uh, persona, for lack of a, a better term, people don't want to drive around town and, you know, and, and see apartments. But you, you just, as I came back, I just noticed that, that dearth of, of housing other than the high rises in, in Riverhead, which I think are great. And I, and I think they provide, you know, a lot of housing, but. Um, You know, you you talk about building affordable housing. It doesn't have to be those high rises. It doesn't have to be huge, you know, huge um, hundred unit, you know, uh, apartments or, or, or whatever. You can you can build some small um, complexes with a, with a few tasteful apartments in it that, that maybe, um, the zoning, you know, currently wouldn't allow. So maybe you change the zoning to allow those and, and they can be really nice and they can look nice and not look out of place necessarily if they're put in, in the right place.
0: I worry too, that the marketplace is going to work against this because if you allow people to put accessory apartments on their houses without the necessary restrictions in place, those can very easily become nice little summer rentals that can make, you know, five figures for somebody. And, and it's going to be policing that is going to be a headache, but, um, this is how the crisis also, has-
1: also drives, drives the, the, the price, the, or the the value of, of those homes up and and the neighboring homes, you know, get assessed at higher values too. And, and you're perpetuating, you know, that issue of, you know, home value issue at, at the same time. Right. It's a, it's a problem we
0: got. It took a long time to get into. It's going to probably take a long time to get out of just real briefly to wrap it up, Denise. Um, What's your take? You know, we we have the conversation on in East Hampton and South Hampton towns about whether this is going to pass or not. And I think that's that's an open question. What's the outlook? Um, it's very early, obviously, and nobody even has plans in place yet. But what do you think the the outlook is for this uh, community housing fund uh, referendum in November on the North Fork and in Riverhead and, and Shelter South hold. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, unfortunately, I
4: haven't uh looked into south i can't speak about south old I, I don't know really what they're doing i should have uh i should look into that but um in riverhead they've like mentioned it in passing a couple of times and the first time was like well we already have so many affordable housing we don't want to you know they yeah. were just kind of dismissive of it but then more recently uh, town officials at a work session said that um the community development department was looking into it and they would be discussing it but that's really all that we've heard. I
1: mean, it would be a lot less money in, in Riverhead than than on the South Fork, but it, it seems to me that if there's an opportunity to to get that money and to put it used to to use, even in a small way, then then the town um, you know might be misguided not to take that that opportunity. I don't think there's any restrictions on it. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, put the town, you know, you have to do this or you have to do that. The town could decide what to do with that money itself, but it's it's there, you know,
4: I think, you know, I think there's some worry that it might somehow negatively impact the CPF uh, fund. Uh, uh, I, I I don't know if that's real or imagined, but that's been floated as a, well, you know, we're finally recovering because the riverhead did borrow against future revenues. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm sorry. Um, and that the fund is finally catching up with the debt again. Uh, the revenues are finally catching up with the debt service. So they're a little skeptical about that, I think. First um, time.
0: So yeah. let's, um, uh, this is uh, Behind the Headlines on WLIW. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Jessica Mackin from the James Lane Post. Michael Mackey from WLIW and Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Denise, there's been some new developments in your downtown in Riverhead. Um, there had been some ideas about some um, code revisions up there. And, and you were saying before we went on the air, that looks like uh, there's now uh, that's the future is in question. Uh,
4: yeah, the town board decided that they were not going to take those code amendments up right just yet and um, kind of go back and, Uh, rework them. Um, So this kind of started when so after the last master plan, which was done in 2003, the town board in like 2006, seven, something like that, um, implemented zoning downtown um, that allowed for uh, five story apartment buildings and, um, you know, these multifamily um, uses, mixed use apartments. Uh, apartment buildings and um, the when they started getting built uh, people uh, reacted badly they didn't like the five story some people reacted badly they didn't like the five story buildings uh, it was too much like you know, Hempstead Queens you know all those, those kinds of criticisms people even calling them names like skyscrapers <laughs> um, but, well, so I, you know people didn't like that and um councilwoman then councilwoman katherine kent who was among the, the critics um formed a proposed forming a downtown revitalization committee and that committee uh put forward an idea to develop a pattern book um sort of uh, piggybacking off work that was done in hampton bays with a pattern book and um the pattern book was just to like set design standards for downtown and The town board, a split board at the time approved hiring this firm to, they did an RFP and they approved hiring a a consulting firm to prepare the pattern book. And um, after a period of time, which included online uh, opinion gathering through surveys and the um, interactive map and some community meetings were held, They presented this pattern book that said, you know, reduce five stories to four stories, implement these various design standards and downtown will look nicer and be less uh, overwhelming in terms of mass and structure of these uh, tall buildings. So the town board in January 2021 adopted the pattern book um, and they finally kind of got around to. Uh, going to hearing on code amendments that would implement the pattern book's recommendations, and they had that hearing last week. And yesterday, uh, in response to criticisms levied leveled by the town's business advisory committee, um, decided that they were going to put those revisions on hold and and look at what the business advisory committee was recommending, which was pretty significant changes to what the pattern book recommended.
0: I got to say, Denise, I always find this interesting because uh, anytime there's a conversation about this kind of thing, about (laughs) setting design uh, ideas for downtown areas. uh, And as you mentioned, uh, we had the conversation in Hampton Bays. And even before that, when the Hampton Bay Center was built, there was a whole conversation about how that would look along montauk highway and and a big debate about whether that was successful or not i think there's a lot of opinions and you're never going to get everybody on the same page with that it's it's complicated
4: it is and it's also quite frankly as the Business Advisory Committee, which is now chaired by a local architect who's got his hands in a lot of different things. But as they pointed out, these standards are all very subjective. You know, they really are like what what, what I think looks good is not what the next guy thinks. Look, you know, so it's like, where do you how do you impose these requirements? I think that's a real I think that's a real issue. Um, it,
1: it seems to be kind of a, a, a trend in in planning to to pick up this kind of pattern book thing. But and, and they had been considering something in Sag Harbor and just, and, you know, over the last um, couple of years and just kind of kind of rejected it. And, and they moved toward just um, standard standard code changes rather than than to pick that up.
4: I, I, I kind of I kind of like looking at the process that's yeah. been involved with these things and what people what the officials are saying that really um, tip, off, tip me off to how they view public participation, you know, um, and I find it troubling. I mean, you know, you go through a whole process, right, and you involve the public, and it was a successful public involvement process, not like the current master plan update. That's another story. But, you know, there were a lot of people involved in these meetings. This committee was very involved. They went through all of this work. The town planning department went through a lot of work putting this together, the town attorney's office, like they invested all these resources, right? They hired these consultants for $175,000. And then a a small group of people, kind of like I would say on inside, you know, the inside crew um, object and the town board's ready to, you know, kind of like toss it out the window. And I mean, I don't know if that's where they're gonna go with this, but you know,
0: um I think leaving this up to the public is really a, a it's it, as you said it's very subjective and Well
4: but I think you got to respect the process though no. you know I really do and yeah and in the context of these conversations you have people you know the, the drive through thing that you have council members saying things like well who does the civic Who does the civic association really represent? Do they really represent the committee? I talk to a lot of people of the community. I talk to a lot of people in that community all the time, and they don't. They don't agree with the civic associations. There's been this kind of like increasing disparagement of the the civic groups and the be, the belief prevailing that they really don't represent a lot of people. It's the same, you know, the, those same ten people that come to speak on behalf of these groups. That's really, you know, that. They don't represent a lot of people. And I, you know, I don't know the the respect for the process and the respect for community input, I think, is really eroding. And that I think is
0: troublesome. You you also had an issue in Wading River um, this week that relates to discussion about a drive-through restaurant up there right that's uh, t- talk about that a little bit about what that debates about well allow, allowing
1: allowing drive-through restaurants in general changing the code to allow them right so,
0: so the
4: the the code in in waiting river which is called business country rural um is uh was it, was
0: rural okay. business <laughs> country <laughs> rural
4: country rural cr business cr and it was uh adopted in the late 1980s and it was or developed in the late 1980s. And the idea was to like not have Wading River turn into, you know, a little further west on 25A, what that looks like. And, you know, the town has a number of zoning uh, provisions in it that try to prevent that sort of suburban sprawl and or limit it to, like I they decided Route 58. So and, and that was like the first stab at that. And one of the, the um, provisions of that code is no drive through restaurants, no drive through windows in restaurants. Meaning M- uh, M- McDonald's,
0: you know, b- yeah. basically fast food places. So the,
4: Starbucks. Code allows, the code allows drive-up windows for banks and for um, pharmacies. pharmacies, but not for restaurants or anything else. And the other thing, the other part of that was no 24-hour businesses, like no 7-Elevens that are going to be open all night. Uh, the town actually got sued by Southland Corporation, and it went all the way to the state's highest court, which upheld the town. Um, and uh, then Southland, which wanted on that very parcel, which ended up being a McDonald's, <laughs> um, they wanted to put a 7-Eleven there. Um, and that's on the corner of 25A and Waiting River Manor Road, which is kind of like an old, it needs infrastructure improvements. It's narrow, it's clogged, like a lot of other intersections around here. and. Um, but anyway, they built and they ended up building a McDonald's there. And it's a McDonald's without a, a drive up window. And the McDonald's closed down in September of 2020. Um, and the owner of the property, not the company or the franchisee, but the owner of the property said they didn't want to renew the lease because they couldn't have a drive up window. And in the pandemic, especially, that's become a lot more important. Um, so that's what he said. It's been vacant since. And um, now the town is looking to uh, remove that ban on drive up windows uh, for restaurants and and adding coffee shops, because as we know now, there's Starbucks. Um, And, you know, the the Waiting River Civic Association is still opposed to it. Um, And the town board is saying, well, you know, who are they anyway? Like, yeah. I, kind of. <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, and they're also worried that the, that the 24 hour business restriction might go out the window
0: as well. Um, it's the so, constant battle to try and keep, keep things from changing too much. Right. That's, that's yeah. sort of what it's about. Uh, the creeping, creeping, uh, commercialization that starts to get in, uh, And you're fighting that battle up there on several fronts. Uh, This is Behind the Headlines on WLIW. I'm Joe Shaw. Bill Sutton is my co-host, and we are with the Express News Group. Our panelists, Jessica Mackin from the James Lane Post, Michael Mackey from WLIW, and Denise Civiletti at Riverhead Local. Um, We should probably, you know, let's talk about, you know, we need to talk about COVID, but um, we were talking before we came on the air that baby formula has suddenly become The big issue, right? And it's a it's a supply and demand and supply chain issue. And it's sort of flaring up in the last week or so uh, with a with a national consciousness sort of turning to the fact that baby formula is one of the issues here. Right, Michael? It's it's we're hearing about it on all over the place.
2: All over the country, and the New York State Department of Health issued guidance yesterday for mothers of babies who are using formula. And uh, uh, these mothers need to be careful that in their desperation, they don't uh, buy bogus uh, formula or try to make their own formula. It's a challenging situation. Uh, It's... uh, it's what could be more important than properly protecting our babies. I actually have a right with me. I'll I'll, uh, get her here in just a sec. A young mother from our own radio station.
0: I think it's somebody we may know. Um, But, but yeah, the the whole part of what's happening here is that, that they're going to have to gear up to produce more baby formula. That's going to take a little time. Um, But but it is something that joining
2: that us now will be a Gianna Volpe, <laughs> L I W F M local host of Heart of the East End. She is the heart of the East End. She's a young mother. Have yes, uh, and a new mom.
4: <laughs> hey, Michael. Hey, Hi, everybody. Hey, Gianna. Hi, Gianna. How's I like, it going?
0: I like, I like that we have sort of a handoff in the middle of the show. This is yeah. cool.
5: Yeah. It's so, it's, so it's yeah. First time for everything.
0: How how is this affecting you? You have a newborn, um, you know, a young child um, on baby formula.
5: Yes. So yeah. uh, on baby formula and now just starting purees as of uh, three days <laughs> now.
0: Which, which is definitely how I know make that, I know. make that change.
3: <laughs> you know, it's
5: funny because she was born January 4th. And even then, I, I just gave a quote uh, to Lisa Finn uh, today about of the shortage, saying that there was a sign up in the hospital uh, uh, letting staff know about a shortage and to limit uh, the formula that they were giving out. And um, it definitely uh, accelerated after the Similac recall and uh, because of all the rising prices of crude oil and whatnot. Um, so we have not run out yet, but we definitely uh, have been, uh, you know, stalking stores multiple times a week. Uh, we o- we do have a rule that we always leave behind at least one uh, bottle for the next person that comes along. But uh, we do kind of worry that uh, we're going to run out with all the recent attention toward the shortage.
0: Sure, And I know in, in some cases, some babies need very specific formulas, right? Correct.
5: Yes. Yeah. Um, for example, if there's a milk allergy, there's one called elementium or something, something along those lines. Uh, so if there are um, uh, dietary needs or, or allergies, uh, some babies do need specific formulas.
0: So it's a lot bigger problem um, for those moms. Um, mm-hmm. Where do you find, where are you finding formula? Where have you found it? And you're saying that you have been able to find it so far, right?
5: Well, so yes, up, up until now, although the, the, The shelves are often bare, uh, something that you can do, uh, for example, through uh, some pharmacies or Target or other stores like that. You can order them uh, since we're we're now finding that uh, that we're not even uh, able to have that option. I just actually put my mother, who's down in South Jersey, into play, uh, trying to order some powdered formula uh, from down there. But yet yeah, people are finding all sorts of creative ways to get formula into the mouths of their babies. Mm. So what, what caused this? Like what caused this shortage? Well, it, it, there's a bunch of different uh, factors, including, you know, the supply chain issues, um, the rising price of fuel. Uh, what happened just recently, at Similac had voluntarily um, uh, I think they had some sort of issue with uh, salmonella or something like that. And in, in one of the formulas, which actually uh, I was just saying to Ryan this morning, we might want to try for Similac now because so many people are scared away from it. But obviously uh, it's not really uh, worrisome. I'm not worried about uh, anything happening to the baby. I think that people are probably just more scared off from the name um, in the short term.
0: No. I want, is this just part of the whole transportation, I, I wonder, Denise, that it's just about not being able to move product, um around the country efficiently because – of, you know, all, all of the supply chain issues. I, I think I think this is just, I think it flares up in different areas and obviously it catches our attention when when it flares up and you're talking um, about baby um, speakers. And then you have
1: a run on it and, you know, because it's scarce, yeah. then people are just, you know, yeah. grabbing up all that they can. Hoarding, and-
5: mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Hoarding is definitely something that I think is probably uh, playing into this, especially since, you know, we just started hearing it in the news in the last week and now you cannot find it anywhere yeah
0: mm-hmm. well we appreciate your pinch hitting here and coming on of course on and giving, I'll giving give us the front line view of the, give of the these, issue
5: of no question of course the baby though no I, yeah. Will. Yeah, exactly. I will <laughs> much love to all you guys i hear bill i hear joe i hear denise and i'll give you michael uh, thank you the, the show of course great, great to, to see thanks you Thanks
0: for that. we appreciate that but you know this denise we we should talk about the fact too that 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 covid is still an issue and it's becoming more of an issue again, right? We're seeing numbers go back up. I noticed that Suffolk County, uh, or I think it was Long Island actually, is approaching, it was approaching 10% again now as far as positivity goes. Um, And I I hear just anecdotally
1: about a lot of cases locally. And and those numbers are low, right? Because people are testing at home and and those aren't reflected in those numbers. So it's a lot higher than that.
4: And, about and then 10%. there's the possibility of, I'm sorry, of, uh, of false negatives too.
1: Yeah,
2: it's I'm about ten percent. Like, and last year at this time, it was about one percent. Right. Yeah. The hospitalizations aren't as great as they might be because so many people are vaccinated in our region, and some have immunity from having contracted it earlier. But you it's, know, it's interesting you though.
4: Out. I was looking at the hospitalization numbers, and you know, because even those, if you look at the graph. Uh, we, have, we have that on our website. Uh, and,
2: They're on the rise. Uh,
4: yeah. I mean, even those are going up. And and right now in Suffolk County, hospitalizations are right about where they were um, in like late August or, you know, approaching late August last year. I so mid-August more, hmm. um, which it, that was, uh, you know, they were on. They had gotten way down in July. And then you remember Delta came along and they started going up and. So they're like on that same trajectory. What happens from here? I I don't know. And I'm not sure what, uh, is what's it attributable? What's this attributable to? I don't know. I mean, people are not talking about it as much. Um, you know, we've been spared the daily, uh, Steve Ballone, uh,
2: you know, <laughs> emails. I think the new people variant. All, you wear a mask indoors now.
0: Yeah, yeah I think the and new the variants has- play a play a role in that. Yeah. Jessica, do you? Are you like me? I know a lot of people who have COVID all of a sudden. Yeah,
3: yeah I, I just keep hearing, you know, oh, I can't make it, or you know, I'm I'm out sick today because I have COVID. That kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think we're going to see. It's interesting because in the last few years, we've always seen a decline going into summer and in our Particular region, um, and it, it seems like we're going. You know, we're going the other way. We had a little bit of a spike. Um, hopefully, it's a small spike, not as and not as huge as the Omicron spike that we had um, earlier this year and around the holidays. Um, but yeah, I the feel like dominant strain, I think, is more contagious than Omicron. They're saying so, yeah. but, but I not- feel
0: like it's moved into the you know out of the pandemic and and into something that's just just more like the flu. Hey, I know a bunch of people who got the flu. I actually do know a bunch of people who got the flu too. So, um, you know, it's, it's becoming something that we just have to manage. I,
1: I'm, I'm wearing my mask again. I'll tell you, cause I, cause yeah. anecdotally like same. I, I just keep hearing people that, that have it right now. And and thank goodness that, that, you know, that they're vaccinated and that they don't get, you know, as, as, as sick and, and all that, but it's still, I don't want to, I don't want to roll those dice. So I'm, I'm wearing my mask again. Yeah. It's definitely a new time. No question.
4: Ask for the Paxlovid, the antiviral. I don't, I'm sure if I'm going to say that right, but you know what I mean? And, and it really, really helps. I mean, my one of my kids had it and her husband and, uh, that really helped them get better very well. Yeah, that's,
0: that's a big part of it, too. We have better treatments now than we So, so we're, we are out of time. Uh, this this uh, hour went by very quickly. Uh, thank you all for uh, being part of the behind the headlines this week. Thank you to Jessica Mackin, Michael Mackey, and Denise Civiletti. Thank you, guys. And thank you, thank you as I always, do. to Bill Sutton, my co host. Uh, we will be back here next week. Thank you.